Well, behind every story that we have in the news, behind every action, and behind every decision, there's always a name. Who's responsible for that disaster? Who got elected? Or even who's coming round to your home? The answer to those questions is normally a person or a group's name. Names are important because they are so much more than the letters that form them on a page. We think of a name and all sorts of thoughts come flying through our mind. What that person's like, what they've done. Hearing the names of people you love can make you happy. Hearing or even seeing the name of people you don't like can make you frustrated. It's easy to take cheap shots at people like Harvey Weinstein and Donald Trump, but when you hear their name, you automatically think about who they are because of what they've done. And when it comes to our own name, we want to protect it and have people think well of us. So when people hear Ben Daniel, I selfishly want them to think, great guy. Our name sums up who we are. But what comes to mind when you think of God's name? We'll see tonight how great God's name is because it reveals who he is and what he's like and what he's come to do. And I want us to marvel tonight from God's word at God's name. So let's continue the Exodus story. To recap, way back in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, God promised to Abraham that his people would become a great nation and inherit a land. It's a great promise. If you remember last week's sermon, the Israelite people have grown in number, which is good. But Joseph has died. And there's a a new pharaoh in town who, who does not know Joseph. This pharaoh began to oppress the Israelites before deciding that wasn't enough and started to kill all the baby boys in what we'd now call ethnic cleansing and genocide. The promised land is starting to look like a a distant dream and the great nation is literally being destroyed. But then Moses is born and not only manages to escape being killed but is raised in the household of Pharaoh and we're thinking, could this be the guy? Could this be the guy to save Israel? But this never happens. Moses kills an Egyptian, realizes that people saw this murder, and then flees to the desert land of Midian. He starts to build a life for himself there, getting married and having children. And while Moses is there in Midian, things are still not great for the Israelite people. They're still being oppressed as slaves in Egypt. It seems like God no longer cares about his people and is no longer with them. But we're left with that cliffhanger at the end of chapter 2. Do you remember at the end of chapter 2, verse 23, which says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. What is God going to do now? Well, strangely, the story comes back to Moses, who's a murderer and a coward. 
who's run away from his own people. And Stephen in Acts chapter 7 tells us that 40 years have passed since Moses fled from Egypt. Moses is old, and the people, uh, the Israelites in Egypt, are still being treated as slaves. Where is God in all this? Why doesn't he sort this mess out? Life can feel that way sometimes. If God cared, he'd give me children. If God was really with me, then why am I ill all the time? Everyone else seems to have abandoned me. Maybe God has too. And we just carry on with life because we feel we have to. And that's what Moses does. Look down with me at chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Moses was tending to the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. He's getting on with life. This isn't going to be just a normal day of shepherding for Moses, though. God has led Moses and his sheep to this point because God is going to act. Look down at verse 2. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up. This is the obvious thing to do, isn't it? With no smartphones about to film this, you've got to go over and take a look for yourself. So Moses wanders over, verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within a bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Here we have God beginning to reveal himself to Moses and beginning to reveal what he's like. We don't know how close Moses was to the burning bush or what distance God said to him, do not come any closer. But the reason God says that is because God is holy. Holiness can be a tricky concept, but the fire helps give us a picture of what God's holiness is like. Moses cannot come any closer, because if he did, he would have got burnt up. Think about bonfire night. You enjoy the fire and the warmth that the fire brings. It looks good from a distance, and it's attractive. And so you gather around it. And fire is active as well. It consumes everything in its path. And if you get too close to that bonfire, your eyes begin to itch and you get a bit uncomfortably hot. And you need to cover your face, just like Moses here. Because if you get too close to that fire, you're right to be afraid of getting burnt up. God is so good and so holy that anything that is not God, like me and you, cannot come near to God without getting burnt up, without being consumed. Even the ground where God is becomes holy. But God has Moses right where he wants him. And he gives a simple command in verse 5. Take off your sandals. 
It's a simple command requiring simple obedience. And God is letting Moses stand in his presence so he can rightly learn to fear him. And then God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is a massive reassurance. Forty years have passed since Moses fled. There's a new Pharaoh on the throne. There's a new generation both in Midian and in Egypt. We don't know about this new Pharaoh, but the old one's dead. And this Pharaoh is killing the uh, Israelites. But God is still the same. God is the God of history, the God of the covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here is the same God speaking to a murderer who's run away from his own people. No wonder Moses is afraid to look at God. His shoes are off and there's no running away this time. So with Moses in total awe of God, he continues to speak in verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God now reveals to Moses his plan of saving the Israelites, his people. Clearly, God does care about his people. But why does he care? Why does he help out? It would be one thing if God just snapped his fingers from up in heaven and sorted all the problems out. But that's not who he is. We have a God who knows the sufferings of his people. Look at verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. It literally says, I know their suffering. I know their suffering. We've seen that God is unapproachably holy. And yet he also comes down and knows the sufferings of his people. Why am I ill all the time? God knows. He knows your suffering. Why, why is my family a mess? God knows. Why is life stressful and no one understands that I hurt myself? God knows. He fully understands. It's because God knows the suffering of his people that he doesn't just snap his fingers from up in heaven and sort things out, but comes down to us. Look at verse 8 and verse 9. So I have come down to rescue them. And God has seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing his people. God knows the suffering of his people. And he is with his people. And he will rescue his people. We have a God who is not a distant God, but a God who comes down to be with his people. God cares about his people because he knows his people. God is not, as, as some people have called it, a, a cosmic vending machine. You, Put in your requests and out comes the answer. Now we have a God who comes down. We have a God who is with his people. So God has come down and the promise given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is now reiterated to Moses. God's people will get a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
The question now then is, how? How will God save his people? Have a look down at verse 10 with me. God says, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. Moses, you're going to be the guy to lead my people to the promised land. Well, hang on just a second. This isn't part of Moses' plan. Look at verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Why me, God? Why choose me to do this? I'm just a caretaker shepherd. I can't go back to Egypt. Moses is unwilling to do this and definitely feels unable. Let's look at God's response. God could have said, Moses, get a grip. You grew up in the courts of Pharaoh and received the best Egyptian education anyone could have asked for. You have the cultural knowledge and an understanding of the political processes that go on within Egypt. You're equipped for this job. You know how to do this job. Or in other words, you can do it. That's what we're told if we're facing issues at the moment. You can do it. Just believe in yourself. If you put your mind to it, you can achieve anything you want. And that's made its way to job descriptions now, asking for a can-do attitude. And you can almost hear the Disney music in the background to those words. Positive thinking and the power to believe in yourself doesn't work, though. Nor does it have the power to topple the Pharaoh of Egypt. Besides, although Moses does have a good Egyptian education, he is inadequate to do this job. But God isn't. God's response is simple. He doesn't deny Moses' inadequacy or give him false belief in himself, but simply says, verse 12, I will be with you. Though Moses is being sent to Pharaoh, the rescue does not depend on Moses. This is about God and God's power. God's active, powerful presence to save his people and to be with Moses should be enough for him. Who am I that I should go? I will be with you. No one sent by God truly goes alone. God continues to give further reassurance to Moses in verse 12. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. This is a great sign. It's a great sign for two reasons. Firstly, it assumes that the Israelites will be rescued. Did you catch that? When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God. That's the confidence that God has in his plan. What's the sign of rescue? When I've rescued you, you'll worship me. And secondly, it's a great sign because the Israelites will worship God on this mountain. If you flick back to verse 1, you'll notice that Moses is on Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai, which is where God later again revealed himself to Moses and gave the law and the Ten Commandments. So after the Israelites have been rescued from Egypt, this is a great sign, a great promise, because Moses can know they're going to go back to this mountain to worship God. And behind both of those signs is a loving, caring, holy God 
who comes down to Moses and says, I will be with you. Now this may all be well and good for Moses, but he has another question for God down there in verse 13. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God has already told Moses who he is in verse 6, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So why ask his name? Well, in the Bible, names have a greater significance than they do today. And for Old Testament Israel, names are like stories. So in the case of God here, his name is his story, summing up who he is and what he is wanting to make known about himself. By presuming the Israelites are going to ask Moses, what is his name? The Israelites are essentially asking, what revelation of God do you bring us? What is the story behind God's name? And this would make sure that the Israelites can distinguish between the one true God and the Egyptian gods. And so in verse 14, we get God's name. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is a massive part of the whole Bible. God reveals his name, which reveals who he is. I am who I am, or in your footnotes, I will be what I will be. This is a name which means you can't compare anything to it. There is no other possible category to which we could compare this name. It is unique. There is no one else like God in every time. God is who he is. In every place, God is who he is. In every circumstance, God is who he is. God is living and active in every moment. Jesus himself speaks of this encounter in Mark 12, 26. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. God is living and active in all times, right here in Chessington and right in front of Moses in the burning bush. There is no moment in time where God is not upholding and sustaining everything. God does not change, and God is with Moses, and it is a great privilege to know God's name. Verse 14 continues. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. In those two verses, we actually get three names of God. Firstly, I am who I am. Secondly, I am. And thirdly, the Lord. And all those names are built on the same Hebrew word, meaning to be. And the word translated into small capitals in your Bibles as Lord is done that way because that word is Yahweh. And the Israelites thought so highly of God's name, Yahweh, and thought it so holy that they were careful not to even say it in case of accidentally blaspheming. That is the reverence 
that they gave to God's name. So I'll ask now, as I did at the start, what comes to mind when you think of God's name? God is who he is, and that is a powerful name. So with Moses coming to the Israelites on the authority of this name, they will sit up and listen. And the plan of rescue is given to Moses a second time in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Verse 16, go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I'll perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. How does God know all these things? How does he know the elders of Israel will listen to Moses? How does he know that Pharaoh will let the Israelites go? How does he know that the people will give the Israelites silver and gold as they leave? Because God is who he is. In every moment, God is who he is. And God has come to save his people and be with his people. And because God is who he is in every moment, saving his people takes no special effort. Look at verse 20. All God needs to do to save his people is stretch out his hand. It is a mighty hand, verse 19 tells us that, but it's just his hand. Like wiping dirt off your shoulder, that's, that's all it takes for God to save his people and strike down Pharaoh. All the big kingdoms of the earth could do with reminding themselves of that. Pharaoh was toppled. The Third Reich lasted only 12 years. The British Empire is no more. It's arrogant to assume that America, Russia, China will be superpowers in the next century. God in his mercy holds back judgment for the right time. But we can take comfort from the fact that to God, these kingdoms are nothing. He could wipe them away with a stretching out of his hand. Only God's kingdom is forever because God is forever. And he has promised Moses that he will be with him. So this is where Moses is left at the end of chapter 3, standing in front of a burning bush with God revealing his name and revealing his plan. He's going to save his people and be with his people. But how do we know that God is still with his people now? He was with his people in the Exodus, he was with Moses, but how do we know he's with his people now, today? 
Well, let's flick forward to John chapter 8, where the Pharisees asked Jesus how we've seen Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is the I am. That means that Jesus is holy. Jesus has power and authority over all earthly kingdoms. And Jesus holds all things together. That means that Jesus is holding all things and is in all things and sustaining all things now. Right here in this country, right here in this room, right here in your life. He saved us. Not from slavery in Egypt, but from even worse slavery to sin and death. And Jesus' name reveals who he is. Jesus means saviour. And that is a great, great name. And we don't have to fear getting consumed by Jesus' holiness because Jesus himself was consumed by the wrath of his Father on the cross in our place. So rather than being told, do not come any closer, we can now draw near to God with boldness and confidence. Like Moses, we just need to trust him to save us. Before he was born, it was prophesied that Jesus would also be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus comes down and enters into the lives, enters into the sufferings of his people to save them, to be with them. Jesus has saved us and he is God with us. It's a simple truth, but truth doesn't change. This means that whatever has already come your way this year and whatever is is yet to come, God is with you. He will always be with you. After Jesus defeated death and was resurrected, he, he was speaking in Matthew 28 saying, go and make disciples of all nations. We can sometimes be unwilling and feel unable to obey God's commands, but in the very next breath, Jesus says, surely I am with you always. So even when you feel inadequate or unable or even unwilling before God, he is with you because he has promised to be with you. By his very name and nature, he is with you forever. Would you trust that? Would you trust that God is with you? So unlike Moses, we don't have to turn away in fear before God. We can run to God because he has revealed who he is. We know his name. He has saved us and he is with us. And he has promised to be with us forever. That means that there is only one name behind everything that has ever happened in history. There is only one name behind every kingdom that has ever risen and fallen. There is only one name behind every sunrise and sunset. There is only one name behind every smile. There is only one name behind every tear that has ever fallen down every cheek. There is only one name that stands forever, sympathizes with all our weaknesses, and forgives our sins. There is only one name on earth by which all people can be saved from sin, rescued from death, and loved forever. And that name is Jesus. What a wonderful name. Shall we pray?
Lord Jesus, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, by your spirit, through the pages of the Bible. Thank you that you are with Moses. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you hold everything, you sustain everything, and you promise to be with us forever. Lord, even when we feel unwilling and unable uh, to trust that, please would you remind us anew of who you are and that you will always, always be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.